Free thinkers, and welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. Well, my friends, it's not every day that we get to interview people who we greatly admire, but over the past few months, that's exactly what we've been fortunate enough to do with the Free Thought Project podcast. We've had numerous guests that have been instrumental in shifting paradigms, challenging the status quo creating awareness, and educating the masses. And our guest this week is no exception to that. He's written 20 books. He's been honored with numerous prizes and awards for his brilliant work and has recorded over 2,300 podcasts to great acclaim. Our guest this week is Dr. Tom Woods, who has long been a trusted resource for many of us on countless topics. Now, Tom was as sharp as ever in our recent conversation where we discussed changes in the cryptosphere and global economic shifts. We talked about RFK Jr. and the recent conversation Tom had with him on his podcast, and we even touched on the topic of police and solutions to the police violence epidemic. And of course, Tom did not disappoint. So get ready to burn that index card of allowable opinion, buckle up, and join myself, Matt, and Tom for this compelling conversation. Dr. Tom Woods, we're ecstatic to have you on the show. It's an honor to have you join us today. You interviewed us in late 2018 after we were deplatformed by Facebook, but today it's our turn to ask some questions. You've long been a go-to for economic, social, and political issues. Uh, you've written numerous books. You're a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, you're a Harvard and Columbia graduate. Your extremely popular podcast is a staple within the Liberty community with over 40 million downloads. And uh, I recently saw that you mentioned in a Facebook post that you finally transferred your Bitcoin off the exchanges into a hardware wallet. And you said, quote, for some reason, I, I thought it would be like mastering quantum physics, but it was not difficult at all. And uh, that's too funny, Tom, because I recently did the same thing this week after delaying it for years. I, too, was, I guess, kind of afraid of the process, thinking it was going to be complicated and stressful. And I, my nerves even had me shaking a little bit during the process. Uh, I guess there's just something about digitally moving money that has like an element of uncertainty to it, you know, and it was certainly stressful, but it, it was easy. It was all relatively easy. But I think we timed it right. And I'm sure like me you saw many people in the crypto community suggesting that now is the time to get off the exchanges. And, uh, you know, there's just a, a lot of anxiety right now within the crypto sphere uh, because of the SEC bullying, bullying certain coins and exchanges. And of course, you know, just a few weeks ago, Biden even suggested a new tax for crypto miners. Uh, in March of this year, the Restrict Act was looking like a Trojan horse to install new barriers and, and hurdles into the crypto industry. And obviously, the dollar is taking a hit right now. You know, even uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says to quote expect a gradual decline in the dollar's share of global reserves. So my question is, with everything going on in the global economic community, with the de-dollarization and the threat of CBDCs, do you think the recent government pressure on crypto is the beginning of yet another tactic by the cabal to consolidate control and limit private competition? Well, sure. I mean, of course, th then there's also the war on cash. And you think, oh, I don't like fiat money anyway. But if you think it can't get worse, it can. It can get worse if they succeed in uh, in limiting the use of cash, because at least the benefit of of the, you know, the money that we use day to day when it's in the form of cash is that it's untrackable. It really is untrackable. I mean, I 
nobody is nobody is following the serial numbers on the various dollar bills. So if I just give somebody some dough, nobody knows about it. But if I write a check, you know, well, everybody knows. Or if I send money through one of the online services, everybody knows. But it's untrackable. So they've always wanted to do this uh, because it's part of the surveillance. Uh, also, they they prefer us not to be using cash because they can more easily manipulate the money supply if we're just using uh, digital money, you know, let's say by just one checking account to another all the time. They, they're okay with that or credit cards. So, yes, of course, I, I, I'm as cynical as you can possibly be about their, their intentions. The one thing that could potentially turn this around is their own self-interest. And I would say when a certain, when a critical mass of, of congressmen have Bitcoin in their investment portfolios, all of a sudden, I suspect some of them may see the light. Well, especially Thomas Massey, right? <laughs> if he could convince just a few of those guys. Well, he's already seen it. Massey's a, an example of a reasonably decent person. In fact, he's well beyond that. He's a really, really genuinely good guy and very, very smart. And even when you disagree with him, you can't dislike him. You just can't. He's, he's, he's likable. He's approachable. He's extremely uh, intelligent. And when he confronts people, in his uh, questioning, let's say, in before Congress, he's so just irresistible. You have to watch these videos where he's he's questioning people. The, the other guy is who's worth watching is Senator John Kennedy. No relation to the Kennedy family. He's in uh, Louisiana down here. Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in Louisiana. Yeah. Now, he's not right on everything. He, he's really bad. on. Something. No, he's a trip, though. <laughs> but when he's good. Man, is he good, you know, because he he tricks you with this down home southern drawl. So you kind of think he's probably dumb. <laughs> and then meanwhile, you just realize, oh, my gosh, he just burned holes in my skull with his laser brain. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's some great and he posts these memes and stuff, too. It's uh, it's he's one of those um, one of those wild guys out there, one of those wild politicians and. Uh, like you just said, I, I don't agree with him on everything, but because he's he's got a lot of that establishment Republican in him. But oh yeah, and he's terrible on Ukraine and stuff, and it's just disappointing. But it's just I I'm sorry, I just for some reason when you're that good, I can forgive a lot. You know, I'm I'm sorry, I'm inconsistent. <laughs> I, well, I admit it. Yeah, I mean that's the whole problem with today's society, right? We fail to find common ground with everybody if they disagree with us on one thing, and then we just won't. I know I, I am so tired of that. I mean, remember in the old days, which were not we're not so old. We used to be able to say so and so is not so good on X, but he's really good on Y, and I'm really really a uh, fan of his work on that subject. We were able to say that instead of this person deserves to die in a vat of acid. I mean, I, when did that happen? It's true, man. COVID was a catalyst for the worst divide I've ever seen in my life, and it's uh, I don't know how we get out of it or, you know, what we do, but like the government solution seems to be just silencing one side of it and censoring you, you know? And unfortunately it seems to be censoring people like us and the libertarian movement that are the ones trying to bring everybody together by trying to find that common ground. But uh, I guess that's dangerous for the establishment. <clears throat> yeah. No kidding. Well, you know, you mentioned RFK jr. And he really is an interesting guy. You could find, plenty of common ground with. I mean, sometimes he wanders off onto old Democratic talking points, but I'll tell you something. I'll take those old Democratic talking points from 1974 or something. You know, I'll take those because they're better than the talking points they have now, and I can at least meet them somewhere. Like, we can have a discussion about it, whereas today, it's like I can't talk to any of these people because they've already demonized me. They've already declared me to be subhuman or not even a, a person because I disagree with them. I could have had an argument with Walter Mondale in 1984 about, you know, what the tax mm -hmm. rate should be or something. But I can't have an argument with the current crop. But RFK is somebody who is genuinely willing to listen, who is willing to talk to a, a, a wide variety of different kinds of people. And it's been so uh, entirely predictable to see, you know, the kind of libertarian I'm talking about <laughs> who instantly – uh, you know, who who will will swoon over Gary Johnson, milk toast Gary Johnson, who, by the way, had his his virtues. And I never denied that. And I've I've uh, met him numerous times and 
been very friendly and and I've complimented him when when credit is due. But you know, he's he's not a barn burner. He's not going to be anti big pharma. He's not really going to be taking a a dagger to the throat of the military industrial complex. I mean, if you pick Bill, you know, well, let's say if you're complimenting Bill Weld and his you know and his insights, <laughs> come on, right? But but RFK is willing to go is willing to to dance on every political third rail there is. And so many of the things that he talks about are Ron Paulian type themes, but, but it's so it is just so utterly predictable that we have among us libertarians who the thing they crave the most is mainstream acceptability. And so they can't be associated with somebody who doesn't like Dr. Fauci. Why don't you know he's the expert who was handpicked for us? And so, so they they can't abide that. They can't abide somebody who thinks maybe the ruling classes don't have our best interests at heart. And they're not just making mistakes and they're not just implementing policies that have, quote, unintended consequences and oh what a bunch of jokers they just need an economics textbook he he doesn't think that way and i don't think that way either i wish that was all we were dealing with that we if we could just send them a few videos from the mises institute you know this would turn them around he does not go for that at all i mean i asked him on my show would you describe anthony fauci as a sinister person now, of course, I mean, there's, you know, a third of the libertarian movement would die a thousand deaths before saying that because, uh, you know, they supported masking. They support all the nonsense that didn't do any good. Uh, so, of course, they can't stand an anti-establishment guy like RFK because they crave establishment respectability. But anyway, I asked him, would you consider Fauci a sinister person? And at the beginning of the answer, he said, well, you know, I don't like to call names or whatever, whatever. The rest of his answer was a giant butt, and at the end of the answer was, so yes, I would call him a sinister person. <laughs> yes. Now, this this is an authentic guy, and I know, I know he would be bad on some things, but the thing is, I feel like the things he's bad on are policies we're never going to get changed anyway in our lifetimes, never going to get them changed. Obviously, government spending is not going to be fixed. Like that's That's obvious. Every couple of years, there's a big drama queen thing about the government being shut down and we won't make the interest payments and nothing ever comes of that and it happens time after time it, i've just i'm at peace now with the spending's never going to be brought under control so we will have some fiscal crisis at some point down the road when we can't pay the bill i i've just reconciled myself to that that's never going to be fixed mm. it doesn't matter if you elect trump desantis whoever it is or rfk it's not going to be fixed so given that that's not going to be fixed i'm not worried about it you know where there is no solution, there is no problem. But when I look at issue after issue, uh, censorship, quote unquote, public health, uh, I look at big pharma, the military industrial complex, all these kinds of things. And then also just he I think he really is opposed to the demonization of people you disagree with. And so sometimes he even says, I don't feel like I have to have a public opinion. Uh, position on absolutely everything because some of these issues are deeply divisive and i think we have enough of that about now well how about that every politician on earth thinks he is not only entitled to but required to have a take it or leave it position on absolutely every last possible thing under the sun how about that kind of humility you know what i don't think we even have to take a position on this like what <laughs> So look, I I have to say I I'm I'm sure rooting for him. I like him. I I, I agree to um and like as far as disagreeing on things and finding the you know the faults that you can look past, he has one rather large one that uh, I'm having a rough time looking past, and it's the it's a, a video from I think it's like 2018 or 2017 where he oh, yeah, actually advocated to yeah to jail people for denying climate change. Yeah, and, I know. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of, you know, if he comes yeah. out and, and apologizes for that and says, you know, like you have the right and free speech to to disavow anything you want to, you know, so long as you're not calling for hurting somebody, then then I could forgive that. But that's a that's a pretty big one. No, that is, you know, I will admit that's a pretty big one. <laughs> you know, I definitely admit that. Yeah. And what's so odd about that, I want to get your thoughts on that. Like, so despite his heavy stance on this leftist issue of climate change which he's outspoken about right um the the mainstream establishment media continues to smear him as quote right wing it is mind-blowing to me that they're calling this 
you know, like he is so far left that, that, you know, it's unmistakable. And yet they keep referring to him as right wing. How do you think they get away with that for one? And like, where do you think, like, what do you think these people are thinking when they're calling Robert F. Kennedy Jr. right wing? Well, first of all, on that thing you said, you know, he, yeah. And and also he's, he's been terrible on guns too. Mm Mm-hmm. My impression is that he has modified that uh, position a bit, uh, and and also that on the I mean the best thing you can say about him on climate change is his recent remarks saying they're taking this climate change issue and they're exploiting it to install global totalitarianism. Well, you don't say, you know, <laughs> we've only been trying to tell you that for years and years, but those words did come out of his mouth. That may be the closest we get to an apology. And I, I, I look, if these were normal times, I would I would demand the niceties of give you have to expressly take that back. I would say, given his emphasis these days on free speech and and uh, civil discourse, it, it would be very, very anomalous for him to to dredge that back up. I My impression is that he's actually changed a bit over the past few years, like really, because I think yeah. the COVID thing shook all of us. And I think, I think it has made him think again about who his real friends are and who his enemies are. So that's, uh, that's definitely one thing, but in terms of calling him right wing, well, this is no surprise. They call Matt Taibbi right wing. They call Glenn Greenwald right wing. Uh, you know, Glenn Greenwald is a, a Bernie supporter who is more or less a socialist. <laughs> but I, he's one of these people who holds both sides to standards. You know, just because so-and-so is a Republican doesn't mean I lie about him. And just because so-and-so is a Democrat right. doesn't mean I make excuses for him. Well, that's extremely rare, especially in this polarized time of ours. So anybody who takes that position must be a sinister person who's up to something. You know, that's that's kind of how they're doing it. But I also think they're trying to... to, to um, to demonize him so people won't look at him. I mean, if you hear that he's he's a right, you know, he's an extremist and he's right wing and he's um, spreading conspiracy theories, which is the way they portray him in, in the major newspapers, the hope is that that people just won't look at him. I mean, they're not actually sitting down saying, well, let's analyze what the meaning of right wing has been over the years and, and let's see how it applies to the ideas of RFK. That, that thought never crosses their minds. Instead, it's what can we do to poison the well? What can we do to uh, make it less likely people will consider him. I think that's what's happening. I think you even shared an article screenshot from the New York Times, which I think was on like June 5th, entitled RFK Jr. with Musk pushes right-wing ideas and misinformation, which is yeah truly astonishing. And as you said, definitely poisoning the well there. As I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, you were kind enough to have us on your show in 2018 and get the word out about what became known as The Purge. And, uh, you know, obviously that was pretty devastating for the Free Thought Project. And little did we know that was only the beginning of, you know, the next couple of years. We saw even more arbitrary censorship and I guess kind of like even a full court press to remove any information that didn't really align with the mainstream media narratives. And COVID really exposed how big tech and the state, you know, weaponized censorship. And of course, Elon's Twitter files that all came out earlier this year kind of proved in, in detail that it was all happening. And we all you know, suspected as much, uh, especially when Facebook was partnering with nefarious think tanks like the Atlantic Council. Not sure if you dug into that one much, Tom, but I know you were caught in the storm with this as well when YouTube removed uh, one of the videos that you had, which was super viral, uh, I believe in November of 2020 called uh, The Dangers of the COVID Cult. And they labeled it misleading. You know, I guess it was was like uh, health feedback, which is one of the worst attack dog fact checkers in my opinion dumb, but dumb low yeah. iq dumb yeah they're yeah they're really bad they have a, a sister <laughs> uh fact checking organization called science feedback but you know in my opinion it was an outstanding analysis and of course you know they had to take it down it gave them a huge black eye uh so i guess with more information coming out about these fact checkers being tied to the establishment do you think that they really have any credibility left and if not, like, I mean, where do you think the establishment will go next to try to control the free flow of information? First of all, I should say that when you were on my show, given that this was a couple of years before COVID, I bet even among my listeners, there were probably a sliver of people thinking, well, this is unusual enough that maybe they were up to no good. You know, like maybe they crossed the line or something. 
And so it, 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 it right. may have seemed like some anomaly. Whereas, in fact, what was happening was you were among, I know you weren't the first, obviously, but you were an early example of what was to come much, much more intensely in the years that followed in, in ways that I just didn't, uh, I didn't anticipate. I think we all, in a way, got used to what we thought would continue in perpetuity, namely a world in which you could say anything you wanted and basically nothing happened. I mean, it's hard to remember now. Uh, that in yeah. in in the you know in 2010 you could post any video you wanted to on YouTube. I mean, really, you could say anything you wanted. You, you could, I mean, it's p people who let's say came of age in the last 10 years will find that impossible to believe. But you really could. You could put a video up; it would be up there forever, and it was your opinion, and you could express it. So now, in terms of um, what's coming next, well, I think there there's a there's been a major backlash against all this, and. I mean, the, the success of Tucker Carlson now just just releasing little videos on Twitter and getting hundreds of millions of of views. Well, I mean, how are you going to put that toothpaste back in the tube? And then we've seen Odyssey and to a greater extent Rumble. I didn't know that Rumble would actually take off because I thought, well, I don't know, maybe it's maybe everybody's going to stick with YouTube, even though we hate it uh, because we feel like there really is no realistic option. And now suddenly it really is huge. And so there are alternatives popping up. They have to be in the red, huh? They they uh, they offer some pretty crazy incentives to some big names, and there's no possible way that they could be making money on that, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't exactly know how they're doing it, but I guess they're thinking that the you know, if if we get a certain number of people over here, like mm -hmm. if we get a, even just a handful of major major voices that could represent the tipping point into a critical mass of people getting over here and this thing really, really just taking off and becoming the universally acknowledged rival to YouTube. So, I mean, YouTube itself even in recent m months has said, uh, okay, now we're, we're, you're allowed to say X and Y about COVID or something. And I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's okay, right. It was right when I said it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, yeah, they'll, they'll keep doing it. And, and you know, you keep hearing these bureaucrats in the EU talking about how we need to crack down on misinformation. But the thing is, at least a third of the world rolls its eyes when it hears the word misinformation because we think you're the, obviously the biggest misinformation spreaders. So is this some kind of gaslighting campaign? Like we all know you do nothing but lie 24 hours a day. We all know that. All you do is lie. And everybody knows that every comment section is filled with people exposing your lies. And you're telling me that I need to be protected from the lies of what Alex Jones? Are you are you out of your mind? Yeah. Well, that's that was the catalyst, right? right? That was the frog in the in the uh in the pot was Alex Jones. And like you said just now, is there was no way to predict where this has gone. And now it's almost as if they're basically transitioning transitioning our reality into this weird state, or at least trying to, right? Like we're told that. There's there's no such thing as biological sex anymore. That that sex is now a social construct, and if you challenge that, you're transphobic. Despite even trans people coming out and saying these things, right? They the the this entire movement to to kind of disassemble reality is is pretty scary. And that was like the next level. So it started with the censorship, right? And then now the very basic fabric of reality is being challenged and and there's so many people who believe it and i know that they seem crazy to like you said you know the, the majority of people don't buy into this stuff but these these small minorities that that uh that actually do believe this are getting pretty dangerous and powerful and the fact that they're going after children now at such an alarming and increasing rate that's you know that that's worrisome for sure you know what do you what do you think that is uh is going on with this like this rampant push by corporations and I mean we talked to, I was just on the round table uh yesterday um and we talked about this and there's uh a lot of people thought that it was the world economic forum and this big top down conspiracy to kind of you know muddy the waters about reality but what do you think is this big push by this woke movement and to to like to go after children and confuse them about sexual orientation and tell them they can be a hundred different genders. What what do you think is behind all that? I 
I've I've undergone a change in my thinking in that I did indeed used to think that uh, some of what was happening in the world could be explained by stupidity. And and I, I still think to some degree, I mean, you know, we're, we're not necessarily always dealing with the brightest bulbs out there, but whoever is actually running things is pretty bright, I think. I, I just honestly cannot believe that what we're seeing emerged purely organically, uh, that people just spontaneously came upon these ideas and were so convinced because of their pure rationality that they adopted them. I, I just do not believe that that is the case. I think some people are probably useful idiots in, in this process, like people who teach in gender studies departments and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing I can't get over is this. If I wanted to disorient and demoralize a population, what kinds of things would I try to do to it? And then I look at what's actually happening in our society, and I think, well, what would I do differently? I mean, I would probably do things like this. That now that itself doesn't prove anything, but it's highly suggestive. I mean, it's like um, this is a this is a rather obscure example, but it's it's I think telling nevertheless. In the late 1960s into 1970, the Catholic Church changed its its mass, the, the liturgy, and they changed all the prayers and. Not all the prayers, but a lot of them, and there are a lot of a lot of uh, aspects of it were were changed, and they had all these excuses for why they were making the changes. But there were a number of uh, Protestants who were on the the committee that made it uh, gave advice to 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 uh, people making these changes, and the result is that if you want to. If you choose just the right combination of prayers, you could offer a Catholic Mass that, in principle, some Lutherans could accept. And you think, well, if a bunch of experts on liturgy produce a result that could, in principle, satisfy a Lutheran, did that happen by accident, or did they do that on purpose? I mean, I, I, I just, I don't understand. Yes, I know how conspiratorial that sounds. That's so terrible. Well, I don't care. I don't care about scary words like conspiratorial. What I'm asking is, what's the plausible explanation for that? They, oops, we accidentally changed the liturgy so that it could, it's, and it just happens now to be more acceptable to Lutherans. You know, whatever. I, it just, just happened at random. I, 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 sorry, I just don't see how you can at least not consider that maybe they were doing that. They were trying to do that because for ecumenical reasons or something. So likewise, I, I, when I look at the, again, I'll, I'll give this example from, from a really conspiratorial guy, and that's Jack McManus. Jack was president of the John Birch Society for many years. He's 88 years old right now. He just wrote me a letter the other day. Uh, he's, he's a great guy. I have no problem with Jack. I love him as a person. And I, but I didn't really buy his whole thing about the Council on Foreign Relations. I thought he was putting the chicken before the egg here. I, I, I wasn't sure that that was really worth emphasizing, even though, yeah, of course, the CFR is full of terrible people. But it's not that the CFR, um, it's, it's, it, he's got, I think he's got it reversed, that, yeah, they bring terrible people onto the CFR. It's, it's not that the CFR is like where all the, you know, all the bad ideas come from. It's that, yeah, they bring all the bad people on there in the first place. But anyway, that doesn't matter. That's not my point. My point is I asked him about this once. I said, Jack, I just can't, I can't get past all the emphasis on conspiracy from, from you guys because it, it doesn't have to be conspiracy. There are many other ways, easier ways to explain what's going on in the world. He said, all right, well, let me give you a thought experiment. If it weren't a conspiracy to do bad things and to and to, to to transform the U.S. in bad ways, then wouldn't you think these people would do the right thing once in a while? I mean, it was once in a while, wouldn't they fall ass backwards into the right thing? But yet you notice they don't. They never do. So if this were just they were just doing random things because they don't know what they're doing. And they're a bunch of goofballs. Well, they would randomly, you know, at random chance would lead them into the right thing every once in a while. And you notice that never happens What's the simplest explanation for that? Is that this isn't happening at random. They actually are trying to do bad things. It's not that they institute policies that have unintended consequences. You can only have unintended consequences so many times. After a while, even a government official figures out that policy A has outcome B. Why are they doing Oh, this policy makes people dependent on the government. What an unintended consequence. Really? Are you sure that's an unintended consequence? Or is that the kind of relationship the regime wants 
the public to have with it. That it depends on them. Of course, it wants that. Of course, it wants to control healthcare and everything else because then you depend on it. Then you have to do what it says. Then you have to you have to inject yourself with whatever they tell you, or otherwise you can't get that organ transplant or whatever. That's the relationship they want. Dependency. Dependency is not some unintended consequence. Th that's what they want. And so that's I think I guess that's where I am now. Yeah. Great point, Tom. And uh, thanks for touching on that. I know the the trans agenda, trans movement subject is a bit sensitive. You know, a lot of people are pretty irrational when it comes to discourse about it, and it tends to be pretty divisive, unfortunately. And I personally have kind of taken a, a different stance on it. You know, um, I, I don't have anything against anybody's individual rights as to who they want to be, uh, who they want to show the world. But, you know, unfortunately, when they're trying to uh, infer that we all have to accept and, and believe those same types of uh, stances and that same mentality on it. it that's where, you know, I, I have a problem and it kind of was, goes along with Matt, what, what Matt was saying as well. You know, I mean, they're going to continue to keep feeding us bullshit until we actually stand up and say no more. And there's that George Orwell quote, you know, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command exactly feels like what's going on right now with the whole trans movement, right? Because we're not even allowed to question it. I mean, the leftists lose their mind if we even question it. And, you know, it, if we can't trust uh, logic or even our eyes and our ears, you know, reason becomes irrelevant. And at that point, popular opinion is all that really matters. And, you know, here at the Free Thought Project, and I would assume you kind of also have this perspective, Tom, is, you know, we don't really try to take too much of the left or the right sides, right? Like both of them are pretty toxic. Both of them are pretty bad on a lot of issues. Uh, of course, the right tends to lead a little bit more towards property rights and individualism, but uh, the left, it just seems like they're kind of way out in left field right now. And they're not really uh, acknowledging much of, you know, the consequences of their, their policies and, and behavior. And, you know, speaking of that, yesterday I saw an article entitled San Francisco ranks last among 63 cities and downtown recovery data shows. And uh, that was a bit heartbreaking for me. You know, I, I used to live in San Francisco in my 20s. And uh, I went back recently and I just didn't recognize the place. You know, not only have huge businesses left, you know, closed shops in certain areas. Uh, now malls are closing. And I saw a report uh, from the Daily Mail saying that half of San Francisco's downtown stores have closed since COVID. And crime is surging. Shootings are regular. Uh, they even brought in the National Guard and California Highway Patrol to make arrests on addicts because, you know, we know how well that goes. And uh, just kind of revamping some of these drug war policies. Uh, I, I know that you're more of a New York guy, Tom, um, but can you maybe give us some insight into what's going on in San Francisco? And I know the right notoriously points blame at the Democrat leadership in democratically run cities as the main culprit. But is this, you know, is this an exception or does that apply in this case as well? Well, I really don't know the case of San Francisco. The only time I've been there was I, I was uh, stuck there in a layover when, when it was snowing back home. So that was I have a I have a San Francisco sweatshirt that I bought at the airport gift shop because I knew that when I got home, my car was going to be buried in snow in the <laughs> parking lot and I was going to have to be out there shoveling it out. And so I needed to get warm somehow. So that's it. I have this sweatshirt from San Francisco. I have seen nothing in San Francisco, literally nothing at all. But I, I'm not sure that I even have much original to say about this I, that hasn't been said by other people observing the situation. Uh, I think it's one thing for libertarians to say, I have issues with the police for the following reasons. Well, so do I. I have a, a, a book called The Problems with the Police, um, and it's, it's at problemswithpolice.com. It's free. And but but mine is a libertarian take on it. it's not a um, left liberal take. It's sure. it's yes, some of the issues we see with police uh, we need to object to. But we have to think about what are the incentives that police face. And there's very there's almost no in fact, I would, wouldn't say almost there's no economic analysis in in my opinion, in non libertarian analyses of problems with the police. There's, but but I think there is. We do have to think about the like wh what are the what incentive does the police have to solve murders? I mean, basically none, because right. what, what are the, do they do they benefit from this in any way? But they have plenty of incentive to um, to to stop uh, you know to to to, to pull over a drug dealer and 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 confiscate the stuff you know that that, that they do, 
or charge you a fine for driving 45 and a 35 or something like that. They, they have an incentive to do that. But the rest of it, it's like the post office. It's like, you are just an annoyance to them. You, you, you know, if I go in there and I say, I want to mail this letter to Hawaii, that's going to lose the money. I am just an annoyance. I am not a customer. I'm an annoyance. And likewise, I remember I lived in Topeka, Kansas. Most people don't realize Topeka, Kansas is a terribly crime infested place. You wouldn't think that, right? You think all the major cities. Topeka is is awful. Uh, we had our house broken into three times, three times in wow. this place. I would never, I don't ever want to set foot in that place ever again. Well, one time the police actually came over because I guess our alarm went off. And so that automatically triggered the police coming and they came over. And he said to me, yeah, we're just overwhelmed. I mean, there's so much that we can't even, there's nothing we can do about it. We're just completely overwhelmed. And that was it. He left. <laughs> that was it. He came over to tell me that they're completely overwhelmed. And then he left. So that's a problem with the police too. That's a problem. It's, it's yes, sometimes it is true that they use excessive force. Other times they don't do anything. And that's either because they don't have the incentive to, or they don't have the resources, whatever it is. But if a private firm had been tasked with keeping us safe in our homes and generated results like this, we would never hear the end of it. Yes. But it's a government agency, so perfectly fine. So anyway, having said all that, it's on a free market, we would still have security. You know, it's not like the police are just some, it's not like they're concentration camp guards. In, in a free society, we wouldn't have any of those. In a free society, we would still have security. So I still want security services provided by somebody. And yet it seems that, it doesn't just seem, in a lot of these blue cities, there has always been this weird left-wing obsession with criminality and the criminal class. For some, whatever reason, whatever that is, because they... They, it's cheeky that they break social conventions, or I, I don't know what it is. But, well, but if I again, if I were trying to disrupt a society, I would say I would come up with the plan that Eric Adams just came up with for New York City, which was okay. We have an unprecedented problem with crime, so in major stores, we're going to put kiosks for people who might be tempted to commit crimes. We're going to give them social services, you know, that maybe they can we can talk them out of wanting to commit crimes or like he had a, a list of absolutely feckless pieces of nothing to deal with the problem of shoplifting and, and other crime. It was uh, and, and then before if somebody commits a crime, you know, steals things. Well, our initial response should be some social program or whatever. Well, well, then, I mean, anybody knows what that means for your for your uh, city or shoplifting us up to a certain amount isn't really going to count for anything. Well, so then, uh, you know, people are going to shoplift up to that amount. I mean, and, and that spills over into my day-to-day -day life because it means that a certain class of person that thinks a certain way, that thinks in antisocial ways, is going to be encouraged, whereas people who are decent and, and civilized are going to be deeply demoralized. And that I, I kind of feel like that is where they want me to be. They want me to feel like it's hopeless. They want me to feel demoralized. They want me to feel like there's no point in even fighting anymore. Um, I think that's what's happening. Yeah, I, I think you just perfectly described exactly what's going on in San Francisco. I mean, maybe inadvertently, but it really feels like that's <laughs> what's going on. I think that was kind of the catalyst too, because they did change that law about uh, shoplifting and that kind of snowballed into this larger effect where uh, now gangs are just running into, you know, certain stores and, and grabbing and looting as much as they can and running out. But uh, I'm glad that you touched on the police there, Tom, because, um, you know, I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with Police the Police. That's our other organization that we've been uh, we've had since uh, the Free Thought Project, even before it actually since 2012. And it just focuses on uh, police accountability with more of like a libertarian flavor as far as solutions go. And uh, I remember seeing a video that was I believe put out by the Mises Institute that uh, you, I think you were speaking at the Mises Institute. In fact, it was called the economics of the police state. Uh, it was nine years ago now. And boy, let me tell you, Tom, like, I just want to personally thank you for that because that changed my whole perspective on the solutions about how we can actually fix the police violence epidemic. And of course, you know, as you mentioned, the left has all these really bad ideas uh, talking about incremental reform, which hasn't worked in you know over a hundred years. So there's ob it's obviously time to try something else. And at the end of the day, uh, the private solution is the one thing that hasn't been tried. And we've seen 
successful results from in places like Detroit with Dale Brown's Threat Management Center. Thank you. I, I'm very happy with that particular talk. I think it was called something like the economics of the police state or uh, having to do with the drug yeah. war. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, yeah I'm, I'm very pleased with that. And as you say, you're, you're right. Um, the, Dale Brown's example, I had him on the Tom Wood show and it's one of people's favorite episodes, uh, shows what you can do with alternative approaches. But I, I remember when at first we started to hear the, the, the mantra from the left became, um, abolish the police, right? Or it was, or it was, no, what was it? Uh, defund the police. I right. beg your pardon. Defund the police. That's very carefully chosen. So I thought, oh, that's not interesting. Defund the police. Wow. All right. I wonder how that's going to look in practice. So they're going to defund the police. What are they going to do instead for security? And then it turned out, well, yeah, we said defund the police, but we don't mean defund the police. And I thought, oh, I should have known. Like the, the one time <laughs> I felt like something had a chance of being abolished, I should have known. Of course, what do you really mean when you say, I mean, like, can we ever get these people to use the correct definitions of words ever? Defund means you take the funding away from. But no, we weren't going to get that. It was, we're going to take the money in again, and we're going to spend it on social programs, whatever, which which generally, I mean, generally speaking, don't do anything. I mean, let's, I think we've had enough decades of experience with this. They really just don't do anything. I mean, I'm sure you can find a success story, you know, here and there, just as I'm sure that, who was that guy who used to advertise on TV saying that if you just place these small uh, ads in newspapers, you can make a fortune. I mean, you know, maybe there were a couple of people who, who did that. I, I, I don't know. But it it, uh, it was it left me unimpressed. And then in particular, I, I think I reported on this. Might have been on CNN. They had one of these defund the police people on. And the, and the anchor actually asked a reasonable question. All right, well, look, somebody is, is uh, breaking into my house. Um, what would you recommend happen in that situation? And the person said that, well, I think feeling, you know, having this feeling of security in your home is an example of the very kind of privilege we need to root out. What are you talking? Are you are you deranged? What are you talking about? You know, so now it's gotten to the point where they so botched this that now you have Democrats <laughs> in other places running away from defund the police. Nobody wants to talk about that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, not to mention uh, Lori Lightfoot uh, misappropriated $220 million uh, in funds for COVID to uh, the Chicago yeah. Police Department, too, which is quite ironic. You know, somebody who was adamantly supporting the defund the, the police movement. Oh, and, and, and of course, as you may have heard, uh, despite all that, she wound up uh, getting a position teaching at Harvard oh, wow. in the fall. She's going to be teaching on leadership and public health. Now, this is a woman who did literally the exact opposite of what any sensible person would have done. Every single thing she did failed to do anything. Her, quote, vaccine passport didn't, didn't do a thing. Didn't, I mean, apart from the civil liberties aspect of it, didn't do anything. She, did, she followed the lead of everybody else, and that's considered leadership now. You do exactly the same thing that all your overlords tell you to do. And it doesn't do any good, as is extremely evident from all the charts. And we're going to have you teach a course on leadership. Like back back to the uh, the police uh, situation and how they have no incentive. We had uh, Maj tour on the podcast not too long ago, and uh, we were talking about crime in Philadelphia and like rampant crime in Philadelphia, where people are getting mugged just pumping gas. And this uh, gas station actually hired private security, and. That's where everybody was going because no one was getting mugged as they pumped gas. You know, they had like these security officers out there with AR-15 standing guard and the the incentives. Right. This was like a double whammy of incentives here. First off it, you know, these security officers, they're held accountable like they're not going to be shielded li from liability with qualified immunity, you know, if they actually hurt somebody. So that stops them uh, from being corrupt. And when we were we were mentioning the story maj actually pointed out that one of the most like the guy who got all the media attention that was being private security there was a really corrupt cop in philadelphia right like i think he was uh he had gotten kicked off the force or whatever but this proved you know through this private dare i say parallel economy that with private security forces that you can even put people in check with the free market that were 
rampantly corrupt in the government controlled monopoly you know so that's like the that's the the one potential solution to everything is is i mean i know that's the libertarian position to privatize everything right but that's what we like to we like to end our podcasts on are, are these potential solutions to to these problems like that and i think i think jason might actually have a question like a, a question more specific to that but i did want to point that out that the the incentives that are created in the free market from can actually help to quell corruption in actual corrupt people. <laughs> well, I, I strongly recommend um, people curious about this. Bruce Benson wrote um, a couple of really great books on this. And, and the lesser known of them is called to serve and protect. And he talks in there about um, privatization options that are, that are entirely plausible. Uh, he's, he's also known for, I'm wondering, did he write that book? The Enterprise of Law. I'm getting a little bit, um, it's been a long time. I'm trying to think of who that was. But anyway, but To Serve and Protect by Bruce Benson is the best libertarian treatment of the police issue I've ever seen. So FYI, it's worth looking for. And if it's hard to find, by the way, I'm going to mm -hmm. give you a great resource out there. Uh, yes, Amazon has Amazon Marketplace where there are a lot of used books. But the best place, if you're looking for a book that's hard to find, is a website called bookfinder.com because they basically have aggregated all the small booksellers like in the US and the UK that and and so you can find any anything you think is out of print almost always you can get it on bookfinder.com that thing has bailed me out many times nice yeah good tip there no kidding. uh yeah as matt said you know we're we're nearing the end of the show and we always just try to end the episode with a light pill and of course that's discussing solutions and strategies and you know how best to move freedom forward and i know you've been plugged in for a long time now to this community, Tom. And, um, you know, it seems like uh, when I first got into this in, in 2011, many suggested that what we needed to do was, you know, just provide this information to the masses, you know, provide the counterintuitive information, plant seeds, uh, increase our numbers. And that has basically been our strategy here at the Free Thought Project for about a decade now. And I know the former Mises Institute president, Jeff Dice, for years advocated for like a multi-prong approach of political action, boots on the ground, and also, you know, the, the winning hearts and minds strategy. And it, it feels like, you know, the political and social environment have shifted greatly over the, the past 10 years, I and mean, even in the last five years. So, you know, do we stick to our principles and, and try to evolve away from the state while growing parallel economies, which we were just talking about, or do we take more of a pragmatic approach and you know, co-opt the state through localism and what Hoppe calls, you know, defensive democracy. And if someone has been in the game, you know, for several decades, like what do you think is the most advantageous strategy that could create some momentum for the liberty movement? Well, it's probably a combination of things. One would be uh, placing a lot of emphasis on your local area and to some extent your state because there's a lot more that can be done at those levels than we realize. Yeah, there's a lot of damage that can be done at the federal level. And man, the Justice Department can inter interfere in things where it's going to be bringing about injustice. I, I totally get it. But there's a lot you can do at the local level. And there are, and you know, and for those who are interested in politics, there are a lot of plenty, there are plenty of winnable races that nobody even thinks about that, it, that don't require a whole lot of money. But, you know, one, one state legislator standing up and 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 speaking out like eric brakey in maine i mean that geez that guy gets up and gives uh you know amazing soliloquies all the time as a matter of fact i got to retweet one of them as soon as i uh finish with you guys but just one person one or two during covid helped to keep people sane and and stood up and and pointed out all the insanity uh th there's a lot you can do at your local level so think about think locally would be one thing but the other thing is, I think that we need to think about our own lives and and making them as unbreakable as possible, because nobody really the most cynical among us did not expect that they would come for your livelihoods as brazenly as they did or that they would try to colonize your children's minds as brazenly as they're trying to. I, I just don't think we anticipated it. And so. I came to a realization after covid that. I had had much too sanguine a view of mankind. And I realized that, uh, and, and mankind really let me down. 
Now, if the ruling classes around the world had handled COVID differently, I don't think big chunks of mankind would have been screaming for lockdowns. But when the idea is suggested to them by the ruling classes, it is shocking how many people just quietly go along, even if it means the destruction of their livelihoods, even if it means terrible health outcomes. Uh, I mean, lockdowns were deadly in so many different ways, and yet they went along. It was like their own lives didn't even matter to them. They couldn't even be bothered to research whether there was any other way of thinking about this situation. They couldn't even be bothered. Yeah, go ahead, ruin my life. And by the way, I'll snitch on anybody who doesn't want to ruin his life. Uh, that's pretty demoralizing. So I began to think, maybe I need to pivot a little bit. Now, I still do the Tom Woods show, and I write a newsletter every day, and I you know, I keep busy. And uh, I'm, I have an ebook, by the way, National Divorce. I bought the domain nationaldivorce.com. I'm very happy to say that nationaldivorce.com is in good hands now. Nice. I own it. <laughs> but anyway, I still do all those things. But I thought to myself, maybe I need, need instead to spend a little bit more time on people who already get it, who don't need to have the most obvious things in the world explained to them. You know, when everything in, going on is happening right under their noses, as obvious as can be, I feel it's it's... I'll still explain it to people who need it explained, but maybe I need to be turning my attention more to people who don't need it explained, who they all get it. They just want to know what should we do now? Okay, I get it. I read all the articles. I've listened to all the podcast episodes. Um, I've gone to all the conferences where people say somebody should do something. Okay, I've done all that. What would you like me to do? So I actually created, maybe you know about this, but I created a membership. Uh, uh, let's see, beginning of last year, 2022, in which uh, I'm appealing to those people. And I'm saying, uh, you know, there are a lot of you people who have followed me a long time and have been wondering what, what do we do? Well, step one is we got to get our own lives in order in the sense that we want to make them unbreakable. So I want to make my kids' minds unbreakable by sheltering them from what's being shoved in there. And for a lot of people, they say, yeah, homeschooling, I know what you're talking about, but I can't possibly do that. So what else you got? So we we talk about stuff like that. We got all the resources in the world or, uh, OK, I've raised my kid. Great. Now I'm going to send him off for four years into the ultra mega indoctrination factory and hope he comes back the same person. Good luck. So we talk about that. How uh, what are ways that somebody in this world can prosper? I mean, I don't mean just scrape by but prosper without having to go through that. Now, some people, they want to go to college. I have nothing against that. But I, I want people to know there are realistic options, not um, you can always go live in the woods or something. I, I'm not, not what I'm talking about, like real options. <laughs> we talk about that. Or if you want to go, how can you go to college debt-free? So we talk about that. But it's not just college. It's about, look, if, I, if they take my livelihood away again, I don't know what I'm going to do. Or if I'm 55 and I get the pink slip, how am I ever going to go back on the job market? So we have stuff on, we teach people how to, how to start a business, how to start a business that actually will work, how to, how to, um, how to do real estate investment or how to relocate on a budget because the place you're living in is sucking the life out of you, but you don't think you, you have the means to get out. You actually do have the means to get out. We'll show you how to do it. So month after month after month, we just learn things that make us better, that make us more unbreakable. And then, but then also things like, you know, I've written a dozen books and, and so I'm, writing another one this year. So I've done a session with my people on how to be a better writer, a better communicator. I've done a session on how to be um, a great public speaker, which is, again, something that'll make you stand out. So all these kinds of things, practical things, not the non-aggression principle, which I love dearly and I live my life by, but we already know about that. But now, like, how do I, what's keeping our people awake at night? It's not, I wish I knew more about George Washington. It, it, and, and by the way, I teach that stuff at <laughs> libertyclassroom.com. I have nothing against that. But it's more like, what do I do? What practical thing do I do when my money is losing its value? And just telling me to buy gold, I'm sorry, is not a sufficient answer. Like, what exactly do I do? All these kinds of things that keep people up at night. You, you know, and a lot of times they tell you when you go into a business that you need to really learn your market. You know, you got to learn your market and what their pain points are. I don't have to learn my market because I am my market. I am one of those people. I do lose sleep over these things. I know what people are scared of and what we're worried about. But instead of just sitting around writing articles about it, let's do things about it. First in your own life, and then let's build things together. So I've got people in this community 
that have gone from nothing. They didn't have their own business or anything. If they lost their job, they would be devastated. I have people who now have two flourishing businesses. I have people, I, I, I have somebody who runs a, uh, a recipe website, brings in 350K a year. I got another person who brings in a million dollars a year running a recipe website who then taught us, how do you do that? How do you do something like that? Take something you love and monetize it. So I have got the best community in the world. And then in addition to all learning all this stuff, the real benefit is we break up into little groups and you have the same little group every week. We meet 10, 15 people. We talk about what's going on, what our goals are. So we have fitness groups, try to get you in shape. We have uh, groups on Bitcoin. We have groups on being a professional copywriter. Uh, we have a women's group. We have a social group, but then we have business groups. You want to start a business. You want to grow your business. You want to scale your business. You, we meet every week and we talk about that. We talk about how you're doing, what, what's going well, what's going badly, what can we help you with? And then at the end of the meeting, you say, by next week, I will have accomplished this small goal so that we're always continuing to move forward. When you work completely by yourself, if you hit a snag, sometimes it just makes you give up and, and you get discouraged and that's the end of it. But this, these groups keep you pushing forward. And that's why we see such great results. People swear by I had a woman who said, I said to me, look, I am in really, really bad financial shape right now, and I just can't afford to remain a member of this community, but I can't bear not to have these groups. The groups are the thing that's going to get me out of this. I can't bear not to have them. That is how people think about it. And so it is the thing I am the proudest of. At the end of my life, I would like my tombstone to say something other than he recorded 7,000 podcast episodes. I would like it to be <laughs> that I actually helped people through a really scary, dangerous time and built a wonderful, beautiful community around that. So this is actually rather immodestly called the Tom Woods School of Life. And it is going like gangbusters. So it's you, you, can, you can visit it, check it out, see what you think of it. It's TomSchoolOfLife.com. Phenomenal answer, Tom. And uh, man, have you ever thought about being a coach? Like, I'm, I feel motivated now. Like, <laughs> not a sports coach, a life coach, or something. I'm sure you don't need more to pile on on top of your daily activities. <laughs> That's but. very kind of you to say. <laughs> um, it, it seems like many are transitioning from the kind of exposing the problem to focusing on the solution. So I'm happy to hear that's something that you're also participating in. All right, free thinkers, this episode is nearing the end. We wanted to take this time to remind you, if you found value in this conversation, please consider hitting that like button and subscribing to the Free Thought Project podcast on your preferred platform of choice. It's an easy, no-cost way to support us and ensure you never miss an episode. Also, the Free Thought Project operates primarily on the generosity of our listeners. If you believe in our mission and support our cause, please consider donating or subscribing by going to the membership tab at the top of our website. Your contributions ensure we are able to continue our important work having these important conversations and your donations help us do just that. Lastly, if you're part of an organization or own a business that aligns with our mission and values, we are currently inviting sponsorships for our podcast. This is a fantastic opportunity to promote your product or make your brand visible to our engaged audience while supporting meaningful discourse. Thank you for your support, Freethinkers, and as always, thank you for listening. Now, you mentioned National Divorce. I also heard you mention Liberty Classroom. I, I know in early April, you released another free ebook, Your Friends Are Wrong About Ukraine, or Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About Ukraine. And uh, is there anything else that you, you wanted to plug or maybe tell people where they could find you, Tom? I mean, we'll have everything linked at the bottom in the caption. Well, I became a bit notorious during COVID because I wrote a newsletter every day and I would find charts and I would find all the craziness and I would explain what was really happening and say, well, here's what they said would happen. Here are the numbers. Is there any humility coming from these people? Like, oh, I guess we got this wrong. <laughs> nope, never, not one time ever. So I just did this day after day and, and people just went berserk for it. So you're right. I've written a lot of eBooks. And it's true that, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're past the COVID thing, but man, I really feel like that was my time to shine. So maybe I will recommend the ebook. Um, I love the title of this, by the way, it's called COVID charts, CNN forgot. So right there. So I don't have to say a libertarian take on COVID, nothing like that. As soon as you hear COVID charts, CNN forgot, you know exactly what this is.
right? So it's a, here's, here's what they said. Here's the reality. So you can get that for free. It is beautifully laid out, by the way. It's it's a it's a really really. I mean, and you'll you'll get such visceral pleasure out of seeing these people eviscerated. So you can get that at chartstheyforgot.com. I love it. Well, Tom, I hope you know how much we appreciate you joining us today. And you know, we had Dr. Paul on in April, and having both of you guys just a couple months apart is absolutely huge for us. And you know, it's really not easy to quantify the effect that you've had on the liberty movement, but one thing that stands out to me is that even as with as much as you've done, as much as you've accomplished over the decades, you still continue to show up consistently each and every day for Liberty with your podcast and your work. And I believe that's a true testament of your character. So thank you. Thank you to you, gentlemen. My pleasure. <laughs>